Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the New Statesman podcast. This week, Deputy Editor Helen Lewis speaks to singer and artist Amanda Palmer and novelist Neil Gaiman about their guest-edited issue for the New Statesman. In this week's New Statesman, we have not one but two guest editors to talk a little bit about the behind-the-scenes aspect. Um, Neil, I'm going to ask you first, was it you or Amanda who came up with the idea of the theme, Saying the Unsayable? I think that theme was mine. Um, Amanda and I were, were sitting around, we'd been asked if we'd like to guest edit, and we started making lists of possible subjects, and Saying the Unsayable, I think, was mine. But there was no doubt when we when we um, when we took on the job, we sort of both looked at each other and nodded our heads, going like, "Of course, what it's probably you know what the issues are going to be is what we've been talking about with all of our friends in every bar and around every dinner table, which is the age the, the age of outrage and um, the kind of weird new levels of censorship." and anger and internet kerfuffle that seem to be happening to us and everybody we know. But it, but it's a really sticky, slippery, messy topic, and what a great place to collect everybody's thoughts about it. But that's something that's, that comes up several times in the issue, isn't it? The idea that although restrictions on speech have never been few, you know, we all live in countries that don't have blasphemy laws, finally, you know, that America's got the First Amendment. At the same time, people often don't feel free to say what they want to for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I mean, the censorship is, you know, it's internal. Mm. And and the internet has been... I mean, I'm fascinated by the internet and social media and having been inside it and standing outside and, and looking at it, it's really... It's bizarre how we start policing ourselves when we just don't want to deal with the drama of... Um, of, you know, what, tweeting the wrong thing or offending someone out there. I mean, the thing about the internet is that it doesn't matter what you say, it will reach someone that it can offend and because it's a universal platform. And, you know, if we, if we all dumb it down to the point where anything we say will offend no one, we'll mm. all just be rendered completely mute. And Neil, do you think 
do you think this is a temporary? Is this a temporary madness? This age of outrage is everyone just going to get bored of being angry all the time? I think that um, in the same way that this age of outrage was unpredictable, um, when it's going to stop and how it's going to stop is also unpredictable. It's it's kind of like one of the things like privacy, where in 40 years' time, it might be absolutely unthinkable to people when they are being told that actually the idea that the, the presidential elections of previous years would have been troubled by the fact that there were photographs of the president displaying her naked body on the web um, There's a candidate who I met who's now just become an MP. She's our youngest MP for 200 years. Her name's Mary Black. She's Scottish National Party. And she had had a Twitter account that she'd had since she was 14. And she had written the kind of things that 14-year-olds write on their Twitter accounts. But she was, to me, the first of that generation whose, you know, their life was their unguarded thoughts that they had never had any idea that they would become a public figure were out there. Mm. Yep. And I always thought there'd be a watershed moment when you get the first person who's, you know who's foolishly sent somebody who they couldn't trust a naked photo ran for office. But at some point you think, will everyone get over it? But, there will, I, but I think there's going to be a point at which everybody who is running for office will have had naked yeah. photographs of themselves floating around because one of the things that people do with cameras is take photos of themselves yeah. not wearing very much. Um, yeah. And cameras are phones and everybody has one. So it, it's one of those things where you're going, okay, strange definitions of privacy, the way that we think about privacy. And they are going to change, and the way that we treat speech is going to change, and it may change in what we say to whom. Um, it may also change because I think what is acceptable um, is starting to change. and Rap Rapidly, too. I mean, it's amazing to me how fast... You know what's acceptable in in language is changing. I mean, as someone who's got Amanda fucking Palmer as her stage name, I've watched just in the course of my career um, the word fuck go from being something absolutely unutterable to like the fuck cancer campaign and also you know and it's yeah. almost like well, not not, not Apple, even generational. So. It's yeah. like this has happened in the past five or ten years. It's. But I wanted to ask you, Amanda, because I think what's really interesting about you, particularly as an artist and as somebody, you know, when female bodies are so kind of picked over and dissected in popular culture, you kind of you've leaned into that, I guess, is probably the way to put it in uh, internet speak. Are there things that you are very private about, though? Are there things? You know, yeah, are your thoughts kind of more, more private than you feel? You feel more kind of you want to keep a grip on them than your, your body or how the images of you are used? I think it's really interesting to see how, how and what... Um, my 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 idea of privacy plays out and um and i've learned this i mean it's kind of been like a learned skill having had a relationship with fans and the internet and the press um which is i can i can use myself as much as i want i can't use other people and that was something that i learned in the in the early days of my blog which was um you know i can I can reach way, way down into the bottom of my soul and discuss and dis, you know and dissect my deepest insecurities, my you know my darkest thoughts, and um, and stuff like that. But I can't share anybody else's story, 
And that's stuff that I learned early on on the internet where it was, you know, I was, I was with my bandmate and I remember, you know, um, Brian and I were touring together and like, you know, Brian had like a, 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 you know, sort of a breakdown on tour. And there I was like blogging about it going like, and Brian's freaking out. And Brian was like, yeah, that's not your story to tell. You can't share my life on your blog. Um, and, and I think you can always come at it from, and I always come at it just from the idea of, am I, what's my intention and, and, and am I, am I harming anyone? I can harm myself. I can bring kerfuffles and controversy galore upon myself, but it's not my, it's really not my right to ever drag anybody else into it. We both, we both tweet, Amanda and I, and we both have social presence. And once and only once in the seven years of our relationship, did we let a squabble start to happen online? And it upset us both to the point where and it was we tiny. went. And it was tiny. It was. It was. Um, we were. I was. She was in play rehearsals. She only had a very short dinner break or lunch break. I was trying to see her, but I was stuck in a meeting, and she tweeted about it. I was waiting. I, I was. I was the. I was the jilted date waiting in a cafe with like a 37-minute break, and Neil had promised he would run over, but then he was five minutes late, and I was like, should I order? I need to eat. And then he was 10 minutes late, and by the time he was like 20 minutes late, and my break was half over, I sent a passive-aggressive tweet. I don't even remember what it was. Do you remember what I it was? Know what it, I mean, the, the point was that suddenly... You know, Dick husband is late or something. Uh, and it was... <laughs> I wasn't even a husband at that point. I think I was still boyfriend or possibly fiance. Um, but the point was suddenly something that should have been private felt like it was going to yeah. at that point probably half a million people and we realized that if that was a really bad thing to have done because it just moved everything into a different place and we figured out thank heavens on a tiny insubstantial thing that we don't do that mm. and if yeah, it makes was... you feel better, my boyfriend and I had an argument about Periscope once. We did a live stream of Periscope about little TV leaders debates, and then we had an argument about the fact that I felt he was being insufficiently contributing to the Periscope. And uh, I thought at that point, this is this is an argument that no one in history has ever had right. before about like our live stream thoughts about what Nicola Sturgeon is saying. Um, I just want to talk <laughs> finally about the uh, about the issue. What was the piece that came in that most surprised you that you weren't kind of quite expecting? I loved Andrew O'Neill's piece mm. on being a comedian and being and needing to be offensive in order for what you do to happen. And I felt like um, if there was one piece in there that I would want, you know, I, want, I would want it on school syllabuses. <laughs> While I loved Rowan Williams on Blasphemy mm. and, and why Blasphemy can be important, um, why I, I loved Michael Sheen, why I loved Lenny's piece, I think Andrew O'Neill explaining why comedy sometimes needs to be offensive, mm. I want every 14-year-old every to know that, with swearing included. And also the bit about the idea that you have to be able to 
deal with being offended. You have to, you know, because he talks very. It, it's it's a fascinating piece. He talks about kind of going to perform to kind of hen nights and stag nights and just and, and just being incredibly rude to them. And then you know, for them, comedy is a is a night out. And you, you yeah, oh, you, you call me a twat. Yeah, very funny, mate. And then you throw a bottle at him, and it's all fine. Whereas if you go and perform at an art centre, everyone thinks that comedy <laughs> is this like let's have an exploration of the human soul. And if you say you know a, a wrong word, then that's kind of that you know then you've let your fans down. Do you think that maybe we ask too much of comedians? I don't know. I wonder if they're the, they're the kind of canary in the mind for offensiveness. I don't think do. we should ask anything of comedians, <laughs> and I don't think we should ask anything of artists and musicians. I think that's looking at it backwards. The job of a comedian and an artist and a musician is to, is to, is to, you know, is to make the art and put out the statement and make the commentary and have the deep feeling and express the thought. And I think one of the things that you do, and it's been really interesting in the wake of Charlie Hebdo, is mm-hmm. like you know, the public does not dictate what art the artists make. You react, you can argue, you can, you know, you can, con- you know, you can confirm or deny that you agree with it or that you would have or would have not made that. But the minute you've got a public going like, well, actually, this is not the kind of art we make. The public's job is to, is to, is to receive the art and react, but not to set the agenda. I think w- once the public starts setting the artistic agenda, we're in trouble. I thought that was interesting because Neil, you picked that up in your diary because you went to the Penn Gala about Charlie Hebdo and about people's kind of inability to separate the idea of, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't publish what Charlie Hebdo publishes, but I support their right to do it. And that's actually something that I think people who are who would otherwise describe themselves as progressive and liberal maybe even have about tabloid newspapers. You know, I, you know, you sort of say, well, I don't like what's in the Sun or the Mail or the Telegraph or the Express, but I support their right to publish it. That's quite a hard thing for for liberals to do, isn't it? I think it is, and I think it's the um, the, the the quicksand. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That many people who think of themselves as liberal and progressive step into and find themselves stuck in and, and sinking slowly into deeper and deeper. Um, I... When I wrote my diary piece, which was about why, you know, hosting a table at the Penn Gala from which six other writers had pulled out because they didn't want to be associated, they didn't want to be present when Charlie Hebdo was applauded, they said. Um, for me, I, it, it was very simple. I, as somebody who had done comics for years, had watched my stuff being banned, had fought to keep it on the shelves, had worked with the the comic book Legal Defense Fund, which is in America the big First Amendment organization, and many times had to go, I think this is disgusting, I think this is appalling. It is absolutely legal for it to have been published, and I am now going to deploy money, I'm going to deploy legal resources, and I'm going to fight for the right of this to exist, and I'm going to fight for the right of this to exist because the moment that I say everything is, you know, free speech is great, except for this stuff, which I think is rather dodgy, um, those people, the ones who I think are rather dodgy, are allowed to turn around and say, well, everything is fine except for Neil's speech, which I think is rather dodgy. And that, for me, is the part of the liberal agenda which just gets lost. 
because they are so I, I'll even throw in a we there because we are so convinced mm. of the rightness of our position and it seems so self-evidently logical that how could anybody disagree with us because we are right-thinking people who are saying right things so obviously freedom of speech issues will never apply to us and but that circles back to the point you were making about kind of Twitter and social media expanding our horizons so much. Is the, the, the weird parallel thing that's happened at exactly the same time is people have gone into this, um, Elia Paris calls it the filter bubble, you know, that you mm-hmm. talk only to people. Like, so on Twitter, I mostly follow people who have the same political opinions as me, the same opinions about what is racist or sexist or homophobic. And therefore, I'm kind of almost always slightly shocked to come into collision with reality. Well, and the technology is actually making everything worse because there are just these huge studies published that were um, shocking about the Google filter bubble. Mm. And, you know, and we don't even realize most people have no awareness of the fact that Google is tailoring their searches to, you know, there's a, I, I forget, there was a great TED talk about filter bubbles, which showed, um, you know, two different two different men. If you've and, got like Republican friends, right, and you've and, been searching you know, for kind of NRA two people stuff searching then, for Egypt yeah. um, on one particular week. One got an entire page of political headlines, and one got um, traveled to Egypt. And and it really is it's terrifying because we we think you know we think of Google as a friend, and we think of the internet as you know as open and, um, and transparent as well and transparent and the information is all just there for everyone to share but I don't think we realize that we are slowly being pushed into um, into places that you know unwittingly we're, we're winding up not even seeing the information I think it's also interesting because it is easy to do um, it's easy to do a certain amount of self-selection with your newspapers and your magazines and your you, can, feed. you can well i was going to say you can read the the guardian and the new statesman or you could read the telegraph and the spectator and and you are going to get two different worldviews and you're going to assume that all right-minded people agree with your worldview um, but it is weirder when the digital villages that we live in uh, become a sort of long tail of people who agree with us Mm-hmm. And at that point, you start to assume that everybody thinks like you do. I, I you know, I watch um, Tumblr is is very strange for that because you'll watch people getting together on Tumblr and agreeing with each other and retweeting and and agreeing, and you're going, this is this is <laughs> kind of crazy. This is well, if not, I wouldn't have said that, but it's but they're wrong. Um, <laughs> which, uh, and nobody's and layers nobody's actually of layers stopping. and layers of irony here. But also that you can see because I find Tumblr is, is interesting because it's much more youth oriented than me. That it makes me feel at thirty one like a kind of elderly you know guy right. yelling at a cloud. And you kind of think they've invented a whole almost a completely different language even to talk about. But it's a lot, issues. and it's a lot of mob mentality and the things that sort of you know like tumble snowball into mm. giant memes are. Um, you can really see playing out there, and especially because it's a younger set and a teenage set where everyone has that desperate need to like be in a group um, and belong and feel like they're caught up in you know one giant mass snowball. You really see it playing out in, in real time there because of the way things collect and mm. balloon, which I, you don't see so much on Twitter because things can't expand 
infinitely mm. like that. I remember the point where I started to understand it and wasn't entirely comfortable with what I was seeing um, was a point where somebody had simply asked me a question about, I think it was Anna Sarkeesian and Lacey Green both being mm. forced off the internet around the same time. And I did a little reply saying about, basically about hate and saying why hate was a bad thing and, you know, directing hate at people online was never going to be a good thing. And I got replies from the people who would, would grow up to be the Gamergate Brigade <laughs> explaining that their hate for Anna Sarkeesian and her light was a virtuous, powerful and important thing and that I should not underestimate their hate and they... They, their hate was good and clean and powerful. And letters from the people who were hating on Lacey Green um, explaining why their social justice warrior hate for her mm. was absolutely justified and powerful. And they were the same letters. Uh, you know, it was just, yeah. I wanted to send them to each other. And go, <laughs> Without the middleman. You are the same people. Yeah. Yeah, you, but you you're, don't know it. You're you, just the hate. You're just the hatey people if you think on different sides of the you hate. You think fence. you're on different sides, right? And yeah. you are on exactly the same side. You're on the side of hate, and that's not good. I had that same experience in the middle of one of these. I can't remember what Twitter storm. I went to France, and I went around because I'm a nerd. A lot of um, 16th century French castles, and there was a lot of stuff about the wars of religion and about. And then I suddenly had this kind of vision of oh hang on a minute this is the same thing that is people it's not only it's hate but it's self-righteous hate it's yeah. it's i have to hate you because this is a cleansing hate and, and a purifying hate and that was that it was that mixture of the kind of the, the intoxicatingness of how how good people felt about having somebody to hate that I, I recognized and then i thought we're all doomed i have one question for you yes why did you pick us I picked you because what I well I say I picked you I don't think I think if anyone Jemima picked you um, uh, because I thought we thought that you would bring something what we try and do with our guest editors it's somebody who is close enough to what our core mission is you know talking about politics and culture and society but brings a completely different perspective that we wouldn't be able to bring in ourselves um, but you so you have to pick somebody who's kind of in the Venn diagram there's a bit of overlap but not too much overlap because otherwise it's too much like a normal issue so what I wanted from both of you was that the idea of, of, of particularly what it means to be an artist now. I thought that was a really interesting question, and it's something that several people in the issue have talked about. In, in an age when you, know, you have a much closer relationship with your fans, when both of you have a social media presence, both of you actually manage to produce art instead of procrastinating all the time, which is kind of something uh, that everybody I, I, don't know if I, would I know who is creative <laughs> moans about constantly, like the world is now too interesting and it's hard to produce art but also that you seem to have a, an interestingly eclectic range of, of friends and people around you, which is really important. Like, that there, was a, there was a Catholicism to your thinking, which is what the New Statesman, I think, tries to do, is not just talk about issues in a very narrow perspective, but jam things together. And like as I was saying earlier, I think this is the only magazine ever produced that has a porn star and a former Archbishop of Canterbury in it. I'm very proud of us for getting Rowan Williams and Stoyer into bed. <laughs> yeah. Metaphorically, in the New Statesman. <laughs> and, 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 and those are the kind of things that get, guess that it's really fly when you have joyful collisions and, yeah. and unexpectedness. And so, the example, this, the other thing that I really love is you know, Khaled Hosseini's very moving piece about going to refugee camps in Syria, juxtaposed with JR's artwork from Ellis Island, and saying, you know, what, 100 years ago, these were the economic migrants. Mm -hmm. These were people who just left everything that they had and made a new life, and, and the world keeps. Turning. And what that I was hugely important for me mm -hmm. because it, it, it took it, I mean, speaking somebody who's been to the Jordanian 
Syrian refugee camps and was moved and broken by it. What I loved about illustrating with JR's Ellis Island art is it it makes you realize this is universal. We're not, when we're talking about refugees, we're not just talking about these people Mm. in this place. We're yeah. talking about what happens to humanity and what we as humans owe each other. Yeah. And the beauty of that, and, and um, I, was just, I was saying earlier, one of the great things about this issue is that it's not like we just showed up with a list of 20 people and then you guys did the work and, you know, and we got those 20 writers. And it was, an, it was an organically growing, changing, evolving discussion as pieces came in and we saw holes and we saw connections. JR's Art never would have gotten in if I hadn't been in a particular neighborhood in Soho, going on a long walk with Art Spiegelman, talking about the cover, and picking up art at JR's studio, um, at which point JR said, have you seen my new book? Look at these refugee images. Hmm. And I went, oh my God, can we use these in the issue? These are beautiful. Um, and and there were beautiful coincidences and, yeah, uh, and sparks sort of like lit all over the issue because honestly, if we had just gotten our, you know, we had our fantasy wish list at the beginning, but if all those people had just, in, you know, just said yes, sure, and then we had showed up three months later and those pieces had been written, I don't think it would have been as good. You know, it was a, it felt like a great gardening work in process where we sort of made room for things and things yeah. dropped out. We definitely planted things yeah. and some you know, some great interviews and articles didn't happen. Mm. But then the things that happened instead were actually, I think, in many cases, gave us more sort of, you know, magazine synergy than we yeah. might have got from some of the others. I think that's the difference between... I mean, I love internet and publishing online, but the, the, the point of having a magazine and just having it... Like, this is a moment. It's not a perfect moment, but it's everything that happened at this one time, and this is it sort of frozen, and this is what we the magazine that we made. Well, that's probably a nice... That's a nice note to end on. So um, thank you very much, Neil and Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.